0: If you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors of the church. Uh, Brian, I spell mine the correct way. You spell yours the incorrect way. It's all good, brother. It's all good. I just wanted to make sure you knew which one was the right way to spell that name. Hebrews chapter 7. If there really is a God would you want to know Him? If there really is a God that is like the Bible says that He is, and is amazing as people gathering all over the world, probably about a billion people this weekend, gathering to worship the God of the Bible, if He really exists, would you want to know Him? Would you want to draw near to Him? Would you want to get yourself as close to God as you possibly could? If you say yes, I pray that you do. What would it take to do that? How could you draw close to God? What barriers would be in your way... For you to be able to draw near to God would be in the way. You see the title for the sermon this morning is draw near to God. And as you've thought through, there's some barriers between me and God. There's some things in the way of me drawing near to God. And so you may think this is an impossible task. Honestly, if you believe drawing near to God is an impossible task for you in and of yourself, you may be closer to drawing near to God than you might realize. I love this little poem. I think I quoted this poem uh, a couple months ago in a sermon as well. It, It says this, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly, but gives us wings. Right? So, the author of Hebrews is going to instruct us to draw near to God. And if we're left to do that in and of ourselves, and if, if, if He doesn't give us any feet or hands to do that with, then that's a depressing instruction. Draw near to God. Really? However, if we're given the wings to fly, so to speak, If we're given the ability through God to be able to draw near to God, then that's excellent news. That's amazing news that we can draw near to God and God actually gives us what we need to draw near to Him. So, the bidding you to fly today and the wings to do it this morning are this draw near to God through Jesus, the forever priest of the better. Covenants. Draw near to God through Jesus, the forever priest of the better covenants. So you'll notice it's not draw near to God out of your own effort. It's not draw near to God with your best effort to look inside yourself. It's not that. It's draw near to God through Jesus, the forever priest of the better covenant. We are jumping in in Hebrews chapter 7. After we read, I'll kind of show you where we are in the argument. But just short, shorthand, we are jumping into this discussion about Jesus being our great high priest. And he started to talk about this guy Melchizedek back in chapter 5. And he's going to pick up on that thought again here at the beginning of chapter 7. So Hebrews Chapter 7, starting at the beginning of the chapter. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change of priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to the other tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord Jesus was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become priest not on basis of legal requirements concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of the weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented By death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently. Because he continues forever. Consequently he is able to save to the uttermost. Those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Holy, innocent, unstained. Separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made made perfect forever. Now, the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that. Your word, Lord, is living and active, that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword, that your word pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. And Lord, it is through your word that you discern the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So, Lord, we ask you to do that in us this morning, that you would cut us to the heart's That you would show us, help us to discern our own hearts before you. And that we would be transformed by your scriptures. And that we would be able to draw near to you. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So again, the exhortation this morning for us is to draw near to God through Jesus, the forever priest of the better covenant. What we have this morning in our text is two rock-solid truths through which we can draw near to God through Jesus Christ. Two rock-solid truths. If we would understand these truths, if we would know these truths, and we would walk in these truths, we could draw near to God through Jesus Christ. The first truth for us this morning is actually in chapter 7 verse 1 all the way through chapter 8 and verse 5 chapter 7 verse 1 all the way through chapter 8 verse 5 the truth is this Jesus is our forever priest Jesus is our forever priest now in 21st century America they that may not mean a whole lot to you all right so we've got a Jump over a couple of hurdles before we see the power of that statement. The first hurdle is this. Notice back with me the beginning of this section in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14 really starts this section. He says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession... For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so the way that we draw near to God is through our priest who is Jesus, and then in chapter 5, verse 1, just the next verse right there, chapter 5, verse 1, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to do what? To act on behalf of men in relation to God. All right, so what is a priest? A priest is one who acts on behalf of sinful mankind to almighty God. And so if you want to find a time that mankind could just go and interact with God and and there were no barriers between mankind and God, you'd have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. You know how that story begins, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And God created, there's this refrain that happens all throughout chapter 1 of the book of Genesis, God said and it was so and it was good. God said, and it was so, and it was good. God said, and it was so, and it was good. Over and over again, as God created all of the universe, all of creation, God created it. And then he gets to the creation of mankind, and what does he say there? He says, let us make man in our image, and after our likeness. All right, so that's kind of the big, broad section in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 2, how does God create the man? Do you remember? How does God create the man? He forms the man out of dust. And then how does man get the breath of life? The Lord God breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. You can't get much closer to God than that, can you? God breathing life into your nostrils. You may say, well, how did God make the woman? Well, the Lord God put the man to sleep and pulled a rib out of the man and then formed a woman out of the rib of the man and then brought the woman to the man. And what we have at the end of Genesis chapter 2 is the first wedding ceremony with the Lord God officiating the wedding between the first man and the first woman. You can't get much closer than that. I'm one of the weird men that loves weddings. I love weddings. Right? I know a lot of men don't love weddings. They feel like it's just one of those necessary things that they have to go to. But I actually love weddings. I actually love officiating weddings, Right, being the pastor up there with the bride and groom. It's a very intimate moment. Right? It's just me and, the, and what the bride and groom are saying to one another, nobody else can hear, but I get to hear it. They whisper the little things and they're like, does my makeup look OK? Right. And they're, they're saying all that stuff and like, hey, do I smell all right? Like, is everything good? That's the guy usually says that. Right. And so all those little things that the, the bride and the groom are saying to me, like, I get to hear that. That's how near God was with the first man and the first woman. He was near to God. It says in Genesis 1 and 2 that the Lord God would walk in the cool of the day with the man and the woman. Right. But something happened. Right. Something happened in Genesis chapter three. The Man and woman said, you know, this isn't enough for us to have this submission to the Lord God, to have this intimacy with the creator God. That's not enough. We want to be like God. And so the man and the woman rebelled against God. They rebelled against his lordship. And so ever since that moment, that broken relationship in Genesis chapter three, we need someone to act on our behalf with God. And so what is that called? That's called a priest. The writer of Hebrews tells us we need someone a go between a mediator between sinful man and holy God. We need a priest. All right. So that's one of the hurdles we need to get over to see the beauty of Jesus being our priest. The other hurdle we need to get over is that the audience for Hebrews would have said, yeah, yeah, we got priests. We've got priests coming out of our ears. We've got all kinds of priests. We have this whole priesthood, this lineage of priests that have existed for thousands of years. We've got priests. We have earthly priests. And so we need to get over that hurdle as well. And so what the author of Hebrews is showing us in this section is we actually need a forever priest. We need a priest that is better than the earthly priest. Right? That's what he talked about at the end of chapter 4 and into chapter 5, chapter five that we need a priest that is better than the earthly priest. And he starts to Uh, basically exposits Psalm 110. He starts to do that in chapter 5. You see where most of your Bibles will have it written a little different, like he's quoting a poem. He's quoting Psalm 110, where the psalmist, David, writes that there's a Son of God who has been begotten by God who is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so he's going to talk about how we need a priest who's after the order of Melchizedek. And the author of Hebrews is going to explain what in the world David meant that he wrote in Psalm 110. But before he could do that, he says, hang on, you guys are not ready for this. You're not ready for this difficult teaching. And so what Scott preached last week was this little aside. You guys need to grow into maturity to be able to understand this teaching. And then in chapter 7, he picks up again about this Melchizedek. And so Jesus is a priest. He's better than all the earthly priests. And he's actually after the order of Melchizedek. I'm just going to point out a few things. There are volumes written on this topic. Lots of, if you're writing a commentary on the book of Hebrews, you need to devote a whole nice lengthy section about what in the world it means that Jesus is is after the order of Melchizedek. You also need to address it if you're going to write a commentary on Psalm 110. But let me just tell you a couple things that are crystal clear in this passage. Why Jesus is better than the Levitical priesthood, the priesthood of Aaron, and why He's better than anything else that you and I might use to go between us and God. Because we use some things to go between us and God, don't we? Sometimes we use rituals. Sometimes we use earthly people. Sometimes we use pastors. Sometimes, and I understand some of you have come out of a Roman Catholic background, sometimes you call them priests, and you're like, well, I need someone to go between me and God. Well, the someone is Jesus, and let's see why he's better. Notice right at the beginning in chapter 7 and verse 1, this Melchizedek, he's king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. That may not seem weird to you. But that would seem weird to the original audience. Whoa, hang on. He was a priest and a king? That's two different people. That's from two completely different tribes, which he actually alludes to uh, later on in chapter 7. How is one person a king and a priest? Well, this obscure guy back in Genesis chapter 14 was a king and a priest. Jesus is a king and a priest. He's also a prophet. That's not what's being discussed here, but he's a king and he's a priest. Notice the name. He says, first, let's translate his name in verse 2. He's a king of righteousness. Okay, Jesus is also a king of righteousness. Uh, This Melchizedek is also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Jesus is referred to as the king of peace. There is no genealogy for Melchizedek recorded for us in the book of Genesis. He just kind of shows up at a relatively obscure place in Genesis chapter 14. He's there for about a paragraph and then we don't hear from him again until this, uh, this statement in Psalm 110. So he's kind of an obscure guy. There's, there's no genealogy recorded in the book of Genesis for this Melchizedek. Well that's Similar to Jesus. Jesus has always been and will always be. He is forever. We also see, starting in verse 4, that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. That is a theme throughout the New Testament, that Jesus is greater than Father Abraham. We also see in verse 11 and following that perfection is not attainable through the Levitical priesthood. Right? If we're trying to obtain perfection, right? To be with God, we need to be perfect. God is not going to be with us unless we are perfect or made perfect. The Levitical priesthood does not allow that to happen, and so we need a better priest. We also see in verse 16, right? Jesus does not become priest and Melchizedek does not become priest just because of bodily descent. Like, oh, I'm a Levite, I guess I have to be a priest. I'm a a descendant of Aaron, I guess I have to be a priest. That's not what it was for Jesus. He was given as an oath, as a, a priest forever, the order of Melchizedek. Another thing about Melchizedek and Jesus, priest forever. One of the problems he talks about in here is that the earthly priests, they can't continue forever because they die. right? Just like you and I, they die. And so we need a priest forever. We need a priest forever. We also see that Jesus is the true priest there at the beginning of chapter 8. He is a true priest. He's not a shadow of heavenly things. He is. He is the exact thing that we need. He is a true priest. Notice in chapter 7, verse 25. Chapter 7, verse 25. He is, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. Since He always lives to make intercession for them. And then notice in chapter 8, and verse 1, we have such a high priest. So if at the beginning of the sermon, I said, if there really is a God, would you want to know Him and would you want to draw near to Him? If you say yes, the way that you do that is through Jesus Christ. He is better than all of the earthly priests that the audience of Hebrews would have used. He's better than the earthly priests that we see in the Old Testament. He's better than the earthly priests than you and I would use. He is how we can have access to God. So how can you draw near to God? Through Jesus Christ, the forever priest. For some of you, this is a salvation issue. For some of you, this is a salvation issue. You have spent your entire life up until this point. Trying to get to God on your own merits. You have tried to bring your sinful self into the presence of God. And you've been forever frustrated by the reality that you can't get to God on your own. And so for you, salvation would look like this. You would repent of trying to get to God on your own. And you would instead trust Jesus Christ as your only hope for salvation you would trust Jesus Christ as your forever priest to give you access to God the Father and be with Him forever. That's what salvation is. For some of you, this is a perseverance issue. You've trusted in Jesus Christ. You have professed, as Brian talked about, you have professed Jesus as Lord, you have believed that. And yet, in your actual life over the past weeks and months, you've been trusting in yourself as your own priest, or you've been trusting in other people. You're like, alright, I've got to figure this out. Let me go talk to all these people. Let me go watch all these YouTube videos. Let me read all these books. Instead of starting with Jesus and getting access to God through Christ. And so for you, it's a perseverance issue to... Uh, to come back into right relationship with God, place your faith in Christ. He is our forever priest. He is the one who acts on behalf of men in relation to God. He is the one that we can draw near to God through Him and He will save us to the uttermost. That's one truth. Jesus is our forever priest. The second big truth for us this morning is in chapter 8, verses 6 through 13. Chapter 8, verses 6 through 13. Jesus is the guarantor of the better covenants. Jesus is the guarantor of the better covenants. Notice I'm grabbing the language actually from back in chapter 7, verse 22. Chapter 7, verse 22, Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. And then he starts to flesh that out in chapter 8, and he starts to uh, show us in Jeremiah chapter 31, and he quotes a lengthy portion of Jeremiah 31 about this new and better covenant. That should erupt a question in our minds. It would definitely erupt a question in the minds of the original audience of Hebrews, right? What old covenant are you talking about, right? There's a few old covenants in uh, the Old Testament. Anybody want to shout one out? An old covenant in the Old Testament? Say it again. Mosaic. We're going to finish with Mosaic. Anybody else want to sound smart? Abrahamic. Good. Anybody else want to sound smart? What's that? Daniel. The covenant with Daniel. Wow. Good. Any others? Noah. Good. All right. So the Noahic covenant, Noah, God's covenant with all of mankind through his people, right? That he would, uh, he would never again destroy the earth with water. Does that, does that sound like what he's talking about here? Probably not what he's talking about here. All right. Any others? Somebody, I heard a whisper. The, da- the covenant with David, right there, good job, McKenna. the Davidic covenant, right? God's covenant with David that uh, through David's offspring, there was going to be a kingdom forever and that a offspring of David would rule on the throne forever, okay? That's also not the covenant he's talking about. He's talking about the Mosaic covenant, God's covenant with his people through Moses. I found a good one verse summary of this covenant. God's covenant with his people, the old covenant that uh, the author of Hebrews has in mind here. Pull it up for me. Uh, Exodus chapter 19 and verse 5. It's up on the screen. Chap- Exodus 19 and verse 5 says this. It was briefly on the screen. Now it's on the screen again. Nope, it's not. That's all right. I'll read it for you. You can look if you want. Exodus chapter 19 and verse 5. If you, people of God, will indeed obey my God's voice and keep my God's covenants, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. That was God's covenant to his people through Moses. Obey my voice. Obey my commandments, we're gonna be cool. That's the old covenant. You've tried this covenant before, haven't you? Right, you've tried this. You've tried it with your kids, haven't you? You put your you're in the place of God, right? And, and your kids are there. You say, "Listen, if you'll just obey me, we're gonna be cool." Right? We're about to go into a store, and we don't rip everything off of the shelves in the store, and we don't yell and scream and 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 do all that stuff, right? We, we don't do that, and so if, if you can just obey my voice, we're going to be cool, right? We're going to have a great relationship, right? So you've tried that. Did it work? Sometimes, usually not, right? Some of you have tried this with your spouse, right? Husbands, you say, listen, if you just do what I say, we're going to be, we're going to be great, Look, there's even a Bible passage that I can just rip out of context and say, Wife, submit to your husband. Did it work? (laughs) Eh, every once in a while maybe. Oh, wives, you do it too, right? Hey, dude, you're not as smart as me, right? You're certainly not as emotionally engaged as me, so if you would just listen to what I'm telling you, this is going to go a lot better, did it work? Maybe for a minute. Probably not. Right? We've tried this. We've tried this with God too, right? We say, alright God, you, you've said that if I just obey you, then we're going to be cool. Alright, I'm going to obey you. I'm going to do what you've told me to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do better than I did last week. And you leave Sunday and you're like, alright, I'm, I'm going to do better. And, and you've tried to walk in that covenant. Does it work? Maybe about five minutes at a time, right? Maybe about five minutes at a time. If you're really good, right? You're really strong, maybe about five minutes at a time. You certainly don't make it to next Sunday, do you? We need a better covenant. Now, before we go saying that there's something wrong with the old covenant, the old covenant had a point. It had at least two points. One, uh, one purpose of the old covenant was to show us what right living looked like. Right? God had saved His people. Exodus chapter 19, He's already saved His people from slavery in Egypt. He's already called the people unto Himself to be His people. And He's teaching them, and Exodus chapter 20 is where we get the Ten Commandments, He's teaching them what right looks like. He's teaching them what a holy, righteous, moral life Looks like that was one point of the law. Hey, this is perfection. This is what it looks like. This is what's required for you and me to be cool. Right? So that's one purpose of the Old Covenant. The other purpose of the Old Covenant was to show us that we can't do it. Right. When you read the Old Testament, what do you keep doing? You're like, oh my goodness, why do y'all keep doing this? Why do you keep messing up? Why do you keep disobeying God? God has done all these things for you. Why do you keep failing? And then the Holy Spirit's like, hey dude, that's you too. That's you too. So the point of the Old Covenant was to show us what right looks like and to show us that we can't do it in and of ourselves. We need a better covenant. We need a new covenant covenant God spoke about the new covenant to his prophet Jeremiah he says I'm going to establish a new covenant with the house of Israel read some things about this new covenant in verse 10 and following verse 10 for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares the Lord I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Skip down to verse twelve. I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. That's a better covenant, is it not? Right. I don't I don't need the covenant of God on a wall somewhere or in scrolls like, all right, where was that? Where was that command about putting fences on my roof? Is that one that still applies today? Right right. No, it's in our hearts. And so as God gives us his Holy Spirit and we know what is right and wrong. And as we walk more and more in his way, we know what's right and wrong. And the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin when we sin. And you realize, like, I think I just did something wrong. I can't name the chapter and verse, but I'm pretty sure I just failed miserably right there. That's the Holy Spirit working in you to convict you of sin and showing you what is right. It's a better covenant that the laws are put on our minds and on our hearts. Also, that the Lord is merciful with our iniquities and will remember our sins no more. You may say, how do I get this better covenant? The old covenant has not worked for me. It didn't work for me with my kids. It didn't work for me with my spouse. It certainly did not work with me and God. So I need a better covenant. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 22. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. How do we draw near to God? We draw near to God through Jesus, who is the guarantor of a better covenant. Some of you have this picture of God where God is still saying to you, obey me and we're going to be cool. Obey me and we're going to be cool. Disobey me and I'll have no part with you. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. Jesus is the one who his, His perfect life Counts for us. His perfect life. His perfectly upholding the old covenant. Can count for us. And his sacrificial substitutionary death. Can also count for us. Like where we've messed up the old covenant. And we deserve the penalty of death. Christ's sacrificial substitutionary death. Can count for our behalf. And his perfect life. Counts on our behalf. For some of you. This is a salvation issue. You've been trying to earn your way to God. You've been trying to get yourself to God. And it's not working. You need to repent, turn, stop trying to do that. And trust in Jesus as the guarantor of a new covenant, of a better covenant. For some of you, this is a perseverance issue. You need to stop living life as though you're earning your salvation every day. And instead, trust in Jesus for your salvation. Trust in Jesus for your ongoing salvation and sanctification. Draw near to God through Jesus. He is the forever priest of the better covenants. We need to uh, address a couple points about who Jesus is and who he is not from this passage. The first one is um, we may have this idea that Jesus is just this really simple idea that Jesus is uh, there's even t- shirts being made Jesus is my homeboy right like there it's just a really simplistic idea. I know I didn't get into the weeds of Melchizedek, but I just want you to know that Jesus is not just overly simplistic, right? There is a clear, exact, complex fulfillment of all that God has been doing, the eternal plans of God, right? So Jesus is not just simplistic. He is complex. He is actually fulfilling everything that took place in the Old Testament. Another wrong idea we might have about Jesus is that Jesus is only a teacher of moral principles, all right? You'll hear this say, Jesus, who, who is Jesus? I encourage you, ask your friends at work, ask your neighbors. Who, who do you think Jesus is? Well, I think he's a good teacher. Okay? And he is, he's a good moral teacher, but he's not just a good moral teacher. Right? Can you imagine the old covenants with all of its laws, with all of its rules, and if all that Jesus did was show up and add more rules That's not helpful. That's not helpful. So he did teach us good moral things. However, that is not all who he is. He is our priest. Gives us access to God. He is the guarantor of a better covenant that allows us access to God. Another one. Jesus is an example to follow. Jesus is an example to follow. Is that true? Yes. Should we live more like Jesus? Yes. On most things. I don't think you're turning water into wine. I don't think you're going to walk on water. I don't think you're going to pass through a locked door. I don't think that, and I don't think you really need to try to do those things. But generally speaking, is Jesus kind and compassionate? Yes. Right? Does Jesus rebuke those who are against God? Yes. Should we be doing those things? Yes. But He's not just our example. He's the priest that grants us access to God. He's the guarantor of a better covenant that gives us access to God to be able to draw near to God. So we can't stop short with just the simplistic aspects of Jesus. Another wrong idea about who Jesus is is that He's a new idea. right? He's a new idea. So not not new in like last week or last month but new idea like 2000 years ago new right like maybe god kind of messed up right maybe this old covenant wasn't really working and so god needed another idea and so he introduced this concept of jesus it's not it jesus is part is the forever eternal plan of god we see that in melchizedek Melchizedek was before Abraham. Melchizedek is great was greater than Abraham. He was superior to Abraham. This has been the plan forever. In Ephesians chapter 1, the apostle Paul is crystal clear on that topic. This is the eternal plan of God. Jesus is all of those things. So let us not boil him down to overly simplistic Concepts about who Jesus is. So let's finish where we start.